did it. Yay. Even Delma yes. didn't fuck it up. You know Excuse what I mean? me? Like, even no, Delma I, didn't I, fuck it up. Wow. <laughs> wow. Because I'm normally the one that fucks it well, up. Well, I thought right? he was going to ask some dumbass, like, Indian question that wasn't informed, you know? And I was going to have to, like, spend days mean, like, no, 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 no. He's okay. Like, I promise. I promise. He's learning. You mean, like, my promise, opening like, a little bit, question? A little bit. <laughs> like that? A little. Kind of. So that wasn't. I thought. I kind of. I kind of expected. I expected that. I didn't expect. Like a little bit of dumb, but I was like, "Oh, I hope he doesn't ask a really dumb one." You know, a little bit of dumb. That's gonna be the name <laughs> of my next album. Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities for their less than ideal selves. I'm Shandine Garcia. And I'm Delma Jackson. And we are so excited to have with us today Miss Lori Tapahanzo. You will not want to miss our time together. So stay tuned. Shandine, yes, I got sir. a question for you. All right, DJ3, bring it. Who's getting on your nerves this week? That's a very, very clear answer. You are getting on my nerves this week. You're jumping up Say and down more. on my nerves this week. Say more. The people want to know. I think I think they know every episode. They they want to know more. <laughs> is it the is it the constant mentorship and guidance that's bringing up any sort of jealousies for you? Is that what it is? Well, that I'm having to do that constantly with you. Yes. Yes. That's the opposite of where I was going with that, but that's cool. <laughs> I think two sets of people. One who actually aren't are getting on my nerves in the right way and right relationship. And they're pushing me on something that's um, they do this beautiful thing where they hold space and then ask you questions that really force you to examine um, self and life and, and love and all the things. I mean, and I'm happy to talk about that. Who's getting on my nerves in the negative sort of space. Like the, the people who are like, be, look, you need to be more patient with, trying to create, you know, a better world. People who don't quite understand what we're trying to do when we talk about liberation and love and sovereignty. People who want to massage language for um, agencies and organizations to the point where you don't even know what the fucking word means anymore because we're having to loophole around potential lawsuits and what we're doing by not saying particular words they're fucking driving me crazy. And I, and I navigate in that. I used to navigate in that um, public agency sphere. And so I get it being outside of it is allowing me to see how fucking damaging that is to our fucking bodies all the time to be doing these sort of grammatical acrobatic, impossible semantic maneuvers now, as I just said that, like all those words together actually embodied what <laughs> what, <laughs> what the ask is. And I wonder how that amount of navigation is sinking in and shaping us for the, for the negative, not like for the worse. I'm wondering if I could ask you for an example. Not being able to say brown and black 
educators and having to say culturally and linguistically diverse educators. And it's because there's a particular org you're working with who does not want you to use that terminology. I'm going to guess they don't want you to use it because it's what exclusionary to all non-brown and black people. Yeah. I actually, in this, in this context, it's actually not the agency it's um, state government. Um, I think the agency really wants to be very clear about what they're trying to do, but um, lawyers who quite frankly advise the rest of us on, on what to do are saying what different language we need to use. So that's an example. Mm -hmm. Another example Um, that happens all the time is when we were working on a project to try to create asset-based language versus deficit-based language and try to get entities to switch out certain terms. So for example, when people say, we need to disaggregate the data by, by subgroup and they'll have white and then all these other groups and saying, you know what? Subgroup is just code for not white. Can we just say disaggregate the data by groups? Period. Mm-hmm. Like we don't need to say subgroup. Mm-hmm. So that, okay, that's not hard to do or make the case for. What is hard are federal categories like English language learners. And what happens in schools is people will say, oh, I work with the ELLs and I just want to fucking punch somebody because language is who we are and how we enter the world. And if we've got indigenous languages that our parents speak to us, that our grandparents speak to us, that our aunties and uncles speak to us, and we're being told, labeled in school as an ELL, as opposed to an emerging multilingual student, an emerging bilingual student. And the pain that I feel is in writing for federal grants or writing for state level grants that to advocate for whatever you're trying to do a program, you're trying to, and they make you list how many ELLs you have in your school district, how many SPEDs you have in your school district, how many, it just, it's so dehumanizing one in the way they categorize students, but two in the function of the word itself, it centers whiteness and English in such a dehumanizing way that when I, when I train or work with people, I'll say like, live in the footnote, like say emerging bilingual students in footnote and be like, federally we use ELLs or federally we blah, 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 and then move on. But the, again, the acrobatic requirement and the semantic games you're playing in your whole fucking body the whole time begins to normalize words and terms to you that I wonder, I don't even know whatever fucking shit I say all the time that's terrible or dehumanizing because I've been saying it for so long in, in, in these contexts. And so what's getting on my nerves is how prevalent that still is and that we and 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 what it takes in this world to require um turn of phrases in a way that is almost fucking impossible. Does that help for some examples? Yeah, no, that's perfect. Yeah, I can appreciate that that struggle, and I can actually riff off of that. Brandon. When I think about what who's getting on my nerves right now, I'm listening to the debate around affirmative action, and um, 
there was a someone on NPR this morning who basically made the case that, well, they're not going to overturn both Roe v. Wade and affirmative action in one um, court season. You know, so affirmative action might be safe for now, which basically is another way of saying it's dead in the water. It's just a matter of time, right? Yeah. And so much of the debate keeps coming back to the notion of a complete willingness to not recognize the ways in which things have been anything but colorblind up to this point. Right. And so your specific example points to a very Eurocentric, American, English centric model of uh, language that does nothing to recognize the various kinds of language that has always existed and always will exist here. And, um, the legal hoops that we have to jump through, whether it's around the kind of language you have to write for a grant, whether it's around policy and procedure as it pertains to things like affirmative action, like that language matters, right? Because in the so many of our founding documents, even, right, we we see folks on the right harking back to these particular terms of phrase. And they'll even take it from people like MLK, right? Content of character instead of color of skin to try to make the case that we should ignore the color of skin when he was saying anything but, right? Um, And again, I find myself really feeling like I just don't want to share space anymore with folks who have these kinds of worldviews. Like, I really just want to draw some sort of line and be like, y'all can go back over there and I'll stay over here. And two, three generations from now, let's see what's popping. Because <laughs> I have a feeling y'all going to be begging to come back, you know. You're talking, you're talking generations of space you want. You don't want like, no. I'll talk to you tomorrow. No, I'll talk no, to you no, next no, no, week. No, no, no. You're saying, I want to see you when my grandchildren yeah, are grown. Maybe. Maybe. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah. If you're lucky. Because uh, it's always like, not always, but it's so easy to think about. Okay, so the, the folks who want to see English become the official language of the United States are also the anti-vaxxers are also the folks who vote for Trump are also the folks who, you know, um, will scream blue lives matter or all lives matter are also the folks, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, And I understand logically that there's some variation even within that population, but in my heart, it doesn't feel like it. Um, And so if this is an experiment in democracy, um, I'm ready to just do a different kind of experiment at this point. I'm like, okay, we tried that. It's working for some more than others. I'm ready to try something different. And why shouldn't I be able to, right? Why shouldn't anybody who wants to be able to? Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm tired of 
trying to get America to be true to what it said on paper. You know? Given given that, given who's on your nerves, what you're listening to, what you're thinking about, what then feels super clear to you right now about your tomorrows and your next month and your next year? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think what feel, the only thing that feels clear is that I want something different. I, the how does not feel clear. Mm. The what doesn't exactly feel clear. Um, the only thing that feels clear is that um, I want what Malcolm X referred to as a bloodless revolution. Right. Um, mm-hmm. In my heart, I'm a reformer. I'm not a revolutionary. And I've. It's, on that butterfly, on, on that, that butterfly, butterfly, the in inside that wing mm-hmm. of the system. Yeah. Okay. I used to, when I was young, I thought I was a revolutionary. And maybe I was more so back then. But as I've aged, I've become more and more entrenched, you know, in the very system that I want to see change. And so if I was ever a revolutionary, I'm quite clear that starting a family kind of helped shift me (laughs) into into reform. Um, That and things like my creature comforts, like I I want them, you know (laughs) what I mean? And so... Um, I'm not ready to go full on John the Baptist, live in the woods, eating honeys and locusts. And, you know, like I'm not, that's no, I don't even want to go camping half the time. Like, just let me, I want Wi-Fi <laughs> and preferably a jacuzzi and all of these other, you know, trappings, if you will. I'm, I've, I've bought in and I have to like acknowledge that. Listeners, what we were referring to when we said butterfly is an earlier episode. We had um, an amazing woman named Leah Penniman who used a butterfly as a metaphor and to say, you know, that there are four parts of the wing. Of, there are four parts of the wings: resistors of the current, reformers in the system, builders of the alternative, and healers of ourselves with each other. And that we might have all shown up differently at different times, but real change can't happen without all of those mm-hmm. four elements. And so that's what um, listeners Delmo was referring to. Yeah, yeah. And and I want to be a builder. I want to be a builder of something new. Thanks for for naming, um, you know, Leah's Leah's contribution to this ongoing conversation. Um, and I think when you talk about creating a school, right, that feels like your contribution to the idea of building something, something new. Um, my question is, what do you do with the exhaustion that you're feeling uh-huh. now? 
that you just named? I've been on this, this, this has been a, a long week and a half, probably one of the best week and a halves I've ever had. I had um, three people who I consider my brothers in my home, in addition to my son and one of their sons who I consider my surrogate son, my bonus mm -hmm. son, if you will. Uh, my beautiful friend Brandy called him my bonus son, and I kind of like how that sounds. Um, and I'm really putting intentional time into wanting to build the concept of a tribal college into life with uh, my beautiful sister, Jody in New Mexico and with other people who are dreaming alongside me, what this, what this can be. And while that was happening at the same time, I'm providing a little bit of strategic counsel to a group of amazing individuals who are launching a racial justice Institute. And there were 156 applications for educators who want to be part of this fellowship that only has 30 mm -hmm. spots. And in doing the math, which I do terribly, that means around 120-ish aren't going to participate in the fellowship part. Now, they're going to get a whole another access to this network part, which is beautiful. But to me, the larger thing was how deep that mm -hmm. need was there. And I went into a tailspin of like, what do I need to do? How do I write this up for a proposal? How do I get more of it funded? What do we need to get to, to replicate this so that they can get the money so that they can? And this, this, these beautiful brothers in my home, including my children, were listening and hearing and, and holding me, but at the same time saying, one, there is not enough capacity to begin to replicate at that scale you want to replicate. There just isn't. Two, keep your fucking eye on the prize. And they didn't say it that way. But like you want to, you know, focus on, se on several things. You've got the podcast, which matters. You're trying to build out an organizational strategy and innovation practice at Metropolitan Group. And you want to have this tribal college come to life. And it's not like you're being swayed by a shiny object. You're being swayed and moved by pain that you're seeing in real time. That's adding those layers of exhaustion and the feel of like, fuck, then what? And I actually just wanted, I was like in the living room with them, like talking and crying and frustrated as they were trying to like help me think through choice. I was like, what the fuck is the name of that animal that just shoves its head into the fucking ground? I'm like, what is that thing? It's like some type of a, a, like a bird that doesn't fly. Like, and I couldn't come up with the name of it. And everyone was like hysterically laughing. I'm like, that's what I want to be right now while you are saying, mm -hmm. I can't do it. Shandine, I love you. Can't do, don't do it. Wrong move to like, and not wrong in terms of what the earth and, and is like, is suggesting I feel or process or deal with or the impulse or the intuition. It's there's so much. So that exhaustion, what do I do in that moment? I essentially was like, fine, fine. And wanted to like stuff my head into the ground. Like, come on, what's the fucking name of ostrich, ostrich on ostrich. I'm like, I still couldn't come up with the name of it. I wanted to be an ostrich. And I seriously was like crossing my arms and frustrated and crying for a good, like 24 hour praying about it, thinking about it. And it wasn't until a couple days later driving to the coast. And one of my brothers said, let's talk about it. 
like it's okay. Let's create a method by like you can that can help you make decisions when you feel all of that pressure and all of that thing. And so lately, because it just feels like such this beautiful generative, it was it was hard because we were doing a lot of work, but this beautiful generative week, I feel like the invitation to empower myself through some sort of choice is helping with that exhaustion to feel okay to say, no, I like, yes, I want to solve this hurt right now overnight and find funding to fund the rest of these amazing educators. But it, it, like, akin to your, um, I want my fucking jacuzzi. We said, fuck this shit. We're exhausted. Let's just go to the coast for three days and just fucking breathe. And we did. And if it means like, I may not make my cell phone payment on time or I'm late with a, <laughs> with my water bill, or I need to take a mini loan to put my fucking child to get a parent loan for his college tuition payment. So I could get away for three fucking days to be at the coast in Manzanita and just breathe. I think that's part of where I'm, what I'm attempting to do when that exhaustion is feels like I don't have a choice. Does that make sense? I feel like I just ranted, but didn't really make um, sense. <clears throat> yeah. I, uh, one of my pet peeves with you is when you dismiss your own stuff. Yes, it made sense. <laughs> and stop doing that. You know damn well it made sense. Interestingly, I was just at the UU church. Um, giving a message this past Sunday, and it was about rest. That was the whole point of my message, right? And the idea that um, some of us are more encouraged to rest than others. And this is something you and I have talked about before, right? Um, Race and gender and class all kind of, you know, play into who gets to rest, who has the right to rest and recreation and who does not. Um, And so I am really proud of you for taking some time to like recuperate um i have to admit i wasn't confident for a while there in you that you would start to take that more seriously but look at you look at you you get a gold star i i don't i get like a what are two down bronze or silver i don't know that i would have done that um on my own. I think having, having my brother, having my bonus son, having, um, trying to, to talk about it more, mm-hmm. did it. I don't know that I could come mm-hmm. to that by myself. I would think, nope, double down, work harder. Mm-hmm. Nope. Like that need is still there. Keep producing. Um, but the overwhelming magnitude of the need for, of support for BIPOC educators, I know it's everywhere in the world, but I'm seeing it in my immediate mm-hmm. face mm-hmm. in Oregon. Mm-hmm. It's fucking devastating. And I and it's not just all awful. I mean, it's all this strength, mm-hmm. strength, strength grounded in like, fuck. It's like, it's, um, I'm trying to come up with the right metaphor. My, my friend on a work call said this the other day. We were all talking about how, like, let's have more grace for one another when we're late to meetings, or let's understand deadlines. Are, like, can also be soft. Let's we're all sort of like talking about compassionate examples, 
And my, my colleague and friend, Ayan, they said, wouldn't it be nice to not have to depend on the individual compassion, compassion of people, but rather be nested in a compassionate mm-hmm. system? Mm-hmm. And so I think about these, the, the strength of these BIPOC educators to show up once again, asking for something, these indigenous and, and black and brown, like all the, just the, like they have to be strong in spite of the shit. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we could just see their strength and beauty just Mm -hmm. as is, as opposed to in response to Mm -hmm. violence and pain and, and, and the, and the fight and Mm -hmm. the grind. Can you like, can you imagine what 156 videos right. of that would look like? God damn. I wouldn't need a break at the fucking coast. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm glad you're surrounded by some good male energy. Because you know, you know, I think. Killing me. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about Bell Hooks, you know, who just who we just lost. Rest in power, you know, and the idea that. She was talking about black women, but I, I don't think she would argue that we could extend that a bit, you know. Women being the pack mules of the planet. You know? Um, having to shoulder all the shit all the time. Yeah. You know, and, and so yeah. I'm going to continue yeah. to encourage you to rest. And I'm glad you have some other fellas around who feel like um what? Empowered enough to demand rest when they need it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I guess I would say two things. One is I left Eugene, where all Mm -hmm. my sisters are. So Lori's there, the Dunbars are there, Jonna Ann is there, and is it like I left all of my sisters. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about these brothers who I'm in community with, they're like real men. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean... They cook, Mm -hmm. they clean, they hold, they center my wholeness. And it's fucking crazy to think that I lived a lifetime without that sort of Mm -hmm. male energy. And they're modeling that for their sons. They're modeling that for Zay and and Ezra and others like around who get to see what that can be. I'll get up to do something like, no, we got it. We'll we'll make, we'll do the meal. We're doing the clean. You don't have to host us. We Mm -hmm. got this. We like, Mm And yeah, let's rest and you, and I'll drive. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing to have waited till I'm 47 to actually have that. Or, yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> dig it. Um, I'm glad you have it. And I'm sorry it had to be one or the other. You know, I'm, I'm sorry you can't have both yeah. the oh, men shit. and women in your life. Um, but hopefully you'll, you'll find ways to, to build out that community as you go, you know. Oh yeah, I'm taking Robin and driving up to kick it with with your girl. So yeah, um, we're good. just you know, don't try to hit on my partner. That's all I ask. Devious <laughs> bastard. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, the last thing I'll, I'll say, um, there's something to be said for the the concept that rest is revolutionary. Um, I, I, the older I get, the more I believe that to be true. Um, it's not right that some people should be able to, at the same time, um, I think part of what you were speaking to when we talk about folks showing up, um, 
and having to show strength because the systems they move in are so crushing. And wouldn't it be nice if systems were more compassionate? I think part of what you're speaking to is like these systems do tend to be more compassionate for those who the system was built for, right? We watch levels of right. corruption and ineptitude and um, mediocrity rise to the heights of the White House, right? Yeah. You don't have to be sharp yeah. to be the president of the United States. That much is fucking clear, right? If you're white, if yeah. you're a white dude, you can do whatever the fuck you want, you know, mm-hmm. and it's all a compassion. Not just mm-hmm. compassion, like compassion would indicate or imply that we see your mistakes. No, 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 no. We're going to worship you. You know, this is a cult of personality. We're going to build around your bullshit, right? You get to act an ass and we'll love you for it. Meanwhile, let me make mm-hmm. one or two mistakes. And now I got to go sit in front of somebody's review board, right? So part of why I think we're not quicker mm-hmm. to take rest is we understand that the consequences for us taking care of ourselves can be far more severe. Yeah, the cost is it's taking food exactly. out of my, my son's mouth. Exactly. Um, and so I'm rooting for the builders like yourself who for can real. help create spaces where then we don't have to operate that way. We don't have to hold those worries. And we do encourage one another to um, take care of ourselves um, when and how we need to. In that in that message of rest being revolutionary, where's your tension point with that? Where do you struggle with that? Because what you just said was just so, it's, it's, I forget all the time. It was so right on. And I'm like, and go back and re-listen to these if the, if it makes it into the cut because mm-hmm. I forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, where is my tension with that? Well, there's always the question of am I doing enough? I think living in this hyper-productive capitalist system, you're always questioning your productivity, no matter what you're producing, right? Am I producing enough? Um, that is something... I think about all the time and what it does for me is it creates a cycle where I produce less because I go into shutdown mode. Like yeah. the, it shakes me at a, at a type of core wherein it is much more difficult to feel creative. Mm-hmm. Right. Anxiety is the enemy of creativity for me. And so um, it can create a really vicious cycle if I'm not careful. Um, something akin to a, a type of depression, you know? Um, and and so I've had some really good teachers along the way who have given me various tools to try to help me navigate that, push through. But it's, it's tough. It's tough. I'm still a work in progress when it comes to that, for sure. I super appreciate you sharing that more than... More than I can express, I just I could feel a shift in the in my space with you just sharing that. So mm-hmm. you'll get my invoice in the you. mail. You're welcome. Oh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Nothing is for free. I owe it to the slaves. Yeah. Yeah. When we come back, we are excited to introduce our audience to our guest and um Looking forward to probing her expertise, 
getting all in her personal business, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be right back. Thank you for giving Dive Justice a listen. We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have. If you're digging the pod, there are a couple of things you could do to show your support. First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together. The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice. Welcome back, everybody. You are going to meet one of the greatest humans who I have the pleasure of being in community with, my dear sister, Lori Tapahanzo. She's Danae in Akama. She's many things, public relations specialist, teacher, consultant, storyteller, jeweler, actress, Currently the Native American Program Coordinator at Lane Community College, where she manages the development and implementation of programming specifically geared towards Indigenous students at Lane. In her position, she teaches leadership college courses, Native American leadership college courses to be specific, produces a summer youth program for Native high school students in Oregon. She's got an extremely strong tribal college background, having worked at Haskell Indian Nations University at SIPI, Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute, and six campuses of Diné College. And if that's not enough, outside of her tribal college work, she's also a consultant who specializes in developing communication-specific and culturally responsible training, seminars, programs for orgs, agencies, and tribal nations, a master's in liberal arts, a bachelor's in communication studies from University of Kansas, an associate's degree in theater from what was then Haskell Indian Junior College, but now Haskell Indian Nations University, where she met my older sister, Jonna Ann. She lives in Eugene. She's a mama to two beautiful adult children, married to an amazing human pursuing a PhD in education at the University of Oregon, and auntie to pretty much every single person who I know who is under age, you know, 24 and younger um, in our sphere. She's kind, she's funny, she's loving, and we're so happy to have her join us today. Aww. (laughs) Thank you for that. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so thank you for taking the time to join us. It's my understanding that both of you are Pueblo, but not of the same um, nation within Pueblo. Is that is that terminology <laughs> even right? Like, how would I make this distinction? Just keep going between Acoma and Laguna. What do you What do you call that distinction? Is we're it just, just geographic? We're, we're just enjoying watching you flounder, quite frankly. Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> Um, but I'm going to edit out the floundering anyway, so I'm going to make it sound like I knew what the fuck I was talking about. So y'all might as well just roll with me on this. I don't know, man. You are stumbling pretty hard. <laughs> in the Pueblo. That is that how you in describe the, it in the Pueblo? In, in the Pueblo? In the, yeah. in the I don't think I said in the Pueblo. <laughs> Come on now. 
don't. It was bad enough. You didn't have to exaggerate this shit. Seriously. Um. Well, so, um, yeah, she Lori Tapahansa Yenishia, Turuk Ojanishle, a shehi Bashichin, Turich Eatni Dashachena, Kadena and Dashanale, Natalinez Denasha. Um, that is how I'm known as a Navajo woman, and I'm also blessed to be raised by the Eagle Clan of the Akama people. And um, that that's how I come into space. Um, I always make sure that I honor uh, my clans, my relatives, um, and bring them with me. Um, so so thank you for allowing them into this into this beautiful space that you've created. Um, now about those. Akamas and Lagunas. <laughs> so um, the way that I was always told um, from my my grandmas and my um, aunties, my dad, is that we were all one and we separated. So um, who went where? Where was the original? You know, that's up for debate. But <laughs> um, Akama is, uh, I would say, just about maybe 15, 20 miles away from Laguna. They're not very far. Um, the languages are still pretty much the same. Um, you know, they we we work well with each other, of course, but we're very different. And and you you know you can have little, um, I don't know, little riffs about who's who's the best, and you know who has the best tamales and chili and bread, but it's still all yummy. <laughs> And we're still we're still relatives, yeah. Still very much so. Yeah, I would say I would I would say the same. Just to respond, you know, was told Spaniards came, attempted to colonize. You go here, 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 and really much engage in the way sisters would, sister nations would. It's you think about family, like we're very unique and different, and yet we're all we're all related, we're all relatives, and so um, I think. Very well said in the, we may argue over whose, you know, Kool-Aid pickles are better or whose, you know, hot popcorn cinnamon balls at feast day are who sells the most. But it's just a different flavor in a different location that's all related. Gosh, all those memories, memories, <laughs> such good childhood memories. I have, I have a question that's going to take a little bit of a, of a. A, a runway to get there um, a little bit so that we can um, inform some of our listeners, but the, the trajectory of federal Indian policies uh, in education in the context is insane. And people talk about um, them like, and, and like woke people to, to use a terrible phrase, talk about it in this, in this beautiful sort of like, these policies were so damaging, these policies to, to native people, it was, it was so terrible what they did to, what they did to indigenous people. Now, let me give you three examples and tell you why there's a, there's a shift I'm hoping to engage with you on in this narrative. Like in, in 1802, the, you know, part of the federal budget every year, like $15,000 was to go to civilize quote unquote Indians, 1819, the federal monies went to churches to educate Indians. 1823, they eliminated fucking sovereignty. You know, 1889, they actually said we Indians must conform to the white man's ways, period. And people talk about how awful that was in the context to Native American people. They don't talk about how that cemented whiteness and what that did to anybody else and to white people in general, like this way of being that are cemented into 
college systems, into K-12 systems, into, quite frankly, even our government structures of how some of our nations are mapped onto the political structure that we live, that the United States is set on, like governors, lieutenant governors, and, 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 and these ways. And so you are neck deep in a higher ed structure and system mapped onto the sort of, like, even though they have indigenous people there, mapped onto these white structures, even though we try to resist them in all the ways that we try via Thunderbird Theater, via longhouses on campus, via, um, and I think my question is, do you, do you ever worry that we're working so hard to create conditions for students that are actually indoctrinating them into the very systems we should have been or trying to resist our entire lives? Ooh, that is a question. That is a question. Um, when I was a student at Haskell, one thing that kept me as part of that community was the sense of family. And it kept me in that community in general for, for 27 years was the sense of belonging, um, acceptance, and family. And it, it mimicked family. So when I went to, from there, I, I worked at um, Dinah College, um, and that was even more so. That was my Navajo family. That was, you know, we, we um, our meetings, every meeting we introduced ourselves the way I did. And um, I got comfortable up to that point being Navajo, having that, that way that you introduce yourself. I wasn't comfortable doing that all the time. I did it on special occasions when I went to Diné College and started working there and it became routine. I was like, why am I not doing this? This is who I am. This is who we are. So that, that was my experience there. We, we greeted each other because we listened to those, those um, introductions. We learned who we were as our, as our brother, sister, um, our in-laws, our aunties, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, because you introduce yourselves with your clans. We would actually walk down the hall. Hi, hi, hey, brother. Hi, sister. We'd intro- we'd say that, like um, acknowledge each other as those clan relationships, family. When I went to Sippy, the same thing. There's, and it's very much a tribal college model of creating a space within an institution that's based on familiarity of existence. I don't know how else to say it. So, does that, does one push on the other, or does this push on that? Does this push outward? Because I think I've experienced and have gone through, and I, I've not been able to see that until I came to Lane. And, and this is what I mean by that experience pushing outward. That's how I learned. That's how I learned to support students. That's how I learned what tribal college, tribal college students need. Any, any um uh, indigenous student, really, I'm going to, I'm going to broaden that any indigenous student needs in order to feel support um, and 
reach towards success, however that comes. That was that model. That's why I'm where I'm at. So when I came to Lane Community College, I went right into tribal college support mode. I went right into that, which has no boundaries, which has no time frame, which doesn't have eight to five on the weekdays and closed on the weekends. I'm accessible anytime my students need me. And I was actually, there was a point at where, um, and, and I work hard, I do. And I would say, oh, my, my, my job description is seven pages long. Actually, it is seven pages long. <laughs> but, and I don't, doesn't mean I do seven pages of, you know, job duties every single day, but it's a lot of work. I'm cut out for that because of my experience going through tribal colleges and having worked at tribal colleges. There is, there is a no quit mentality and, and this is, and so I want to say this now, and then I'm going to jump back and kind of um, wrap back around to what you all talked about earlier about rest and the balance there. So my experience here has been, you do so much, Lori. Are you sure? You don't have to do all of that. I can't imagine supporting my students any differently. And the reason is because there's such a lack of support. There's such a lack of support. So while I am creating this space, they, they, a lot of my students and, and, you know, I would love, I would have loved to have invited a few of them on. I actually just spoke, heard one speak on Saturday, talked about the experience of going through our program and saying that there was, if it hadn't been for the support of the community that we've created around our longhouse, which is based on indigenous family models, they would feel lost. They wouldn't have felt, they wouldn't have felt as connected and supported as a brown student going through a white institution. So while I, I understand the question, if, if we're, you know, are we helping them to conform? I think it's actually, for me, I see it the opposite, that we're pushing against that and creating, by pushing against, you create this space that is not recognizable or understandable to anybody else but those who it's created for. I super appreciate the reframe and I'm seeing the um, almost in real time, all four of the sections of those of the butterfly sections that we were talking about manifest themselves through um, how you show up in, in these spaces. So um, I just, I really appreciate shifting the way we look at how, what it means to create racially affirming spaces for a particular group of students in this context that we're trying to, we're trying to survive. So thank you. I know Delma's got another question, a brewing. (laughs) Yeah, I was um, wanting to pan out a little bit from education specific, uh, well, academia specific piece and talk a little bit about representation representation uh, does matter. When you look at or think about contemporary representation, whether it's local and more connected to your own personal um, upbringing, 
and things that feel intimately familiar to you or when you look more broadly at just the way indigenous folks are more broadly represented? You see the misinformation continue to uh, pop up. And are there particular tropes that feel particularly problematic more so than others? Are there any that really stand out as, oh my God, like, can we just not do this anymore? Um, and if so, what are some of those things for you? And the reason I wanted to offer it to both is just because I perceive something problematic doesn't necessarily mean someone else who shares my identity feels the same way about it, right? They can have a very different analysis. So I didn't want to um, put any one person on the spot as though they were going to speak for everybody else. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I have both of you here right now. Let me use this as an opportunity to ask that question. Does what I'm asking make sense? I think, um, I, I think what, what you're asking me is how do I see my indigeneity mirrored back from mm -hmm. society? Right. Correct. Um, I would say because I am an avid movie watcher, <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I'm an actor, I see, um, and I work with theater, I see productions happening. I think, I think things ch are changing. I think things mm -hmm. um, are becoming more centered on an idea that we need to let people speak their own truths and, and share their own identities. I think that's happening all around, but because of that larger, broader conversation where we're allowed to even name our, you know, give our pronouns, we, we get to say who we are as part of our identity in an introduction, you know, society's a, kind of loosening up and saying, okay, we're not going to label you. We're going to allow you to label yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. We're allowed to, to, and, and, and I would say it probably took off from standing rock when, you know, I, I, I see, I saw a shift at that point where, where people are like, Oh, wow. There's actually indigenous folks still here <laughs> because I'm not mm -hmm. even kidding. Me and my husband had, probably about mm, 10 years ago went to um, we went to New Orleans and we were walking around and a guy from across the street says to my husband, Hey, Hey, are you Indian? And J Jimmy turned and he's like, yeah. And he kind of, we just both stopped and we're walking on opposite sides. He goes, man, I didn't know if you guys still existed. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. We're like, what? Mm -hmm literally a couple of years ago. So us not being able to, to be here in the present current today um, has been a big issue and, and not seen as, as today uh, contributing members of society today. That's been a huge, huge issue that we've all had to kind of, you know, regroup to, to, to try to deal with, I wouldn't even say, you know, it's, it's been fixed or we've, we've been very good or successful at, at really um, changing that narrative. We're getting there. We're going in that direction. Um, we, we're starting to see it. And I'm working a lot with um, production companies and in, in the entertainment business now with a few projects mm -hmm. I've had, 
I'm seeing the shift. I'm, I'm again, seeing it with um, movie scripts coming out. We're, we're on the, the brink of having, you know, launching a ton of major motion picture projects that are written by native writers. I, I know this is happening from the backside. I don't, I don't know the titles. I don't know when that's coming out, but you know, they're, they're there, they're coming. So our voices, we're being asked to, to share our own stories more and more. Mm. I'm seeing more native scripts come out in theater. Um, I'm seeing more of us being allowed to tell the multitudes of different stories from different tribes and our own identities all separate. You know, how, how are we showing up in the world? We're allowed to say that now more so than I think we were when I was starting in theater or when I was growing up. Um, is it perfect? Absolutely not. You know, we, we have a long way to go and, um, stereotypes, we're still, you know, we're still facing those every single day when I meet somebody who says something about, you know, spirituality and how, you know, they assume that I can talk to animals. (laughs) I do, but my cat doesn't answer me. (laughs) Nima, I keep trying to get her to answer me, you know, or that I I hear things in the wind. You know, those are tropes that we're constantly, that we're these Mm -hmm. hyper spiritual people. Well, you know, we, we have a, an existence. We have a way that we move in the world. It's different for every single person based on the person in a culture. Sure. You know, that, that influences. Um, I talked to you earlier about how I prepared for today, you know, and, um, and my, my way of doing that is going to be different than how Shandine does it or how, you know, my husband does it even, um, you know, my daughters are from different tribes. You know, it could be different for them. So, you know, uh, the power of us to be able to to speak and create our own um, the story of our own identities is 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 powerful, and it is continuing to um, to be something that we're more comfortable doing as well as Indigenous people. You know, and, and strengthening within ourselves. Mm-hmm. I love listening to to what you offered, Lori. I've got a I've got a completely surprising um, response to the the representation. Surprising to me, and I'm upset, upsetting to me about how I'm taking in the representation and the the Renaissance resurgence, or not even resurgence, surgence of um, that's even a word of our own um, identity being um, seen, our identities and all the complexity that that it offers. One, genocide is real. Yes, we're still alive. And it is so fucking hard in whatever sector it, up, it is that we enter to actually become the expert and the creator of, of something. Because what it takes to get through high school itself what it takes to get through graduate school, what it takes to like all the way to get to the thing where you're finally there. First of all, there's so few of us that make it who aren't so fucking damaged and destroyed in whiteness that like those that are there, um, we're just, we're like pinning all our hopes and dreams on the, in whatever sector who have made it. And so I struggle to be a, a, a critic 
of, of those. Like I, I used to hold on to, you know, powwow highway as this like cult film for indigenous people and wonder if we'd ever have another Gary farmer, right. Wonder if we'd ever have. And so parts of that. um, So that's not the piece that I, that I'm, that I want to speak to, but I want to name it because there's so fucking few of us that it's hard to have an open conversation about this and not feel like we're indicting our, our P I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm indicting our people um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a damaging way. When I first read talking leaves by Craig Leslie, the first time in my fucking life, I saw an indigenous being represented somewhere. And it was in a book, not in film. It was in what that meant. And so, and this is the part that I'm really, what I'm about to say, what I'm really sad about. I've spent hours and hours and days and day like ad nauseum lecturing about our representation in books, in classroom, in film, and why we need it and what it means and blah, 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 like just constantly. And then I get to watch, you know, reservation dogs. And, and I'm not saying it doesn't have its complexities with gender because it does. I'm not saying it doesn't have its complexities with some, with some other things, but I thought it would bring me relief. It is actually so fucking painful to watch, to watch the poverty, to watch that girl's stomach be upset with the stuff that she was eating, to watch the navigation of, of, of IHS, of Indian Health Services, to watch the, it, like, and then, and then I, I did what, what my brother Khalif calls abandoning of self. I did the like, like that's your shit, Shandine. Like, watch this thing and like it better. Watch this thing and like it more. You've been fighting for this forever. Now it's in front of you, and now you're gonna be like, now it's gonna, you're gonna like, you're gonna let it bother you in that way. So then I like abandon my ability, abandon my permission, my own sovereignty to have a reasonable response to it, because, well, because of all the reasons that it's so few, and finally we have something, and finally it's a, and so I, I'm torn with wanting everybody else to see us and knowing that reality of being seen carries fucking 500 years of damage that people did to us. It doesn't just show the beauty and the strength because we fucking like are amazing humans and we are like, we are nature. We are like, we bring these pieces and, and, and Lori's right. When we talk about what it means to prepare or spirituality, we're talking about all the complexity of it. Like what does being Indian mean? People ask me who are indigenous people. What'd you do when you got up in the morning? I got up and I brushed my teeth. I had some water and I had some toast. And that's what fucking being Indian means. It doesn't mean standing on a fucking cliff at sunrise with the, with the Pocahontas goddamn, you know, animals swirling around you the way Disney tells us to. So I desperately want the representation. So indigenous people don't feel like the only thing they have to grasp onto is the Hollywood bullshit. But yet when the representation representation happens, I can't even breathe. It hurts so much. I can't watch it. And then I get mad that I can't watch it. What's too realistic. What's too painful. What feels like it should be an inside conversation are we ready you know i think back to aaron aaron magruder's work with the boondocks that was a big critique of the boondocks dude you putting some shit out there we don't want everybody else looking at because when white people are laughing they're laughing at the wrong thing right Mm -hmm. so it created this Mm -hmm. whole conversation around Mm -hmm. um how we use comedy Mm -hmm. 
And it's not new. A lot of shit Richard Pryor did. It was the same thing. Dude, that's that's in-house shit you talking about. You know, and that can get real controversial real fast because some people are all about it and they love it and others are cringing. You know, what are they going to think about us? And I think that's a big part of the conversation that these media outlets um, and products provide. That's a big central portion of the conversation is. And I that's the thing I resent the most, that yeah. I can't just let us make shit for us without having to worry about what the fuck some cracker going to think about it. That pisses me off to no end. And so as I'm hearing both of you come from both sides of that conversation and recognizing all the complexities therein, I'm just sitting here like, yeah, yep, yep, <laughs> exactly. So, so I appreciate it. Thank you. I was thinking about like when we first started and, and talking specifically about reservation dogs, when, when me, my husband and my two daughters, 29 and 30, we were kind of skeptical, you know, I was like, mm, I don't know. We maybe forgot that there were other people that were going to be watching this because we saw things that were, you're right, very, very inside humor, inside, um, only we would understand, you know, some of this, like the IHS look, you know, the IHS look, how we would understand that, we would see it, and we were watching it and, and laughing and enjoying that show, and then afterwards realizing, oh, the world's going to see this, you know, the world, and that was, I think, where there was a, we, we tried to reconcile the thoughts of being so happy seeing ourselves and our stories, but we also had to flip it because there were tropes that were not, that we were being exposed um, from us outward that, um, mm -hmm we couldn't explain and we mm -hmm. couldn't, um, you know, how are we, how are we portraying other cultures through our eyes? Because that's kind of mm -hmm. what was coming out too on the screen. And that yeah. was problematic. Why are we laughing at this? What, what are, we had conversations within our family about what we were seeing, what was being portrayed and what the world was seeing. And, you know, there's a lot. I and mean, when you talk specifically about that show, you know, that, that was, there's a, there's so many layers to that and, and, um, feelings that come from that and what is representation and what does that mean? And what is the cost? What is the cost of yep. that representation? You know, I think that's what it boils down to. One of the things we try to do with this show is normalize our humanity in the sense that we're often not at our best. Uh, you had to see this coming if you've listened to the show. So I'm just going to get right to it. Lori, when you are being really fucking petty, like you're just like your lowest self and you just give zero fucks, what does that look like? <laughs> and you can't look at your notes to see what you wrote down. It was like you're prepared. To yeah, answer. You're prepared. Oh, I did not no, prepare for this yeah. one. No, really? I no. I listened to it every single one. You know what? the The first show I listened to, I was like, "Oh, that's a good question." And then after the invite, I was like, "Ooh, I got to remember that." 
totally forgot to prepare for this part. Okay. Very good. Okay. 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 Um, what does it look like when people are road raging me? When people are road raging mm. me, and you know, Oregon's kind of crazy drivers, <laughs> um, crazy slow drivers. So when I when I'm you know moving about my business and they get mad at me, I ignore them. They they cease to exist. And you know what? And I smile. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're getting Eddie. Yeah. Now we're yeah, getting yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, beautiful, 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 Lori. Thank you so much. I'm just so moved by the time that you spent with us, by letting us push you on the petty, by um, being the person who we can actually dig in on the on the on the context of um, representation and what it means for us on a reframe thinking about white systems and and not granting that premise. And more. So I'm just so, I'm so grateful. I'm also grateful that I don't have any more meetings the rest of the day. And I can just go on a walk and think about all of the stuff you've invited us to think about. So I just want to thank you. Dive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com. Dive in Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fierenstein is our audio engineer. Susanna McCandless is our administrative support. Jenny Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien help us out with marketing and promotions. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.